Amen. Our scripture reading today comes from Luke chapter 21. We're continuing the series in the Gospel of Luke. And if you have a church background, this might be a familiar story to you, but I hope that today it would, the Holy Spirit would open it up in a new way to you. So chapter 21, verses 1 through 4 on page 880 of your pew Bibles. Hear these words from the book that we love. Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. And he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, let, she out of her poverty put in all that she had to live on. This is God's word. So we're continuing the series in the Gospel of Luke, and this is uh, continuing the part of a, a large theme in Luke's Gospel. We talk about God's love for the lost, and uh, moving forward, you know, like next week, the Palm Sunday, Easter, and um, even the wrapping things up with the Emmaus Road the week after Easter, we'll start talking about God, God's vindication of Jesus is the next major theme of the Gospel of Luke. So there's three major themes, and those are the two that are kind of here and coming up. As, but today we're going to see that Jesus not only loves the lost, but sets them up as standards for what it looks like to follow him. So it's important that we talk about hard topics because the Bible talks about hard topics. And I know you probably don't come to church and want to hear about giving and giving of your money. But the Bible talks about giving and giving our money. And so we talk about it too. So you might not be pumped up and high-fiving the person next to you because you're going to, we're going to talk about this, but this is an important thing for us all to remember. It's important for us to remember that giving is actually an act of worship. It's an act of worship to God, particularly through giving to your local church, as the New Testament says. But giving of our money back to God is part of our worship. And interestingly, no other person in the Bible talks more about money than Jesus. I don't know if you knew that. Nobody else talks about money more than Jesus talks about money. And no other gospel speaks about money more than Luke's gospel speaks about money. So Luke and Jesus want us to know that, there's, that money can have a certain stranglehold on us like nothing else. And so Jesus and the gospel of Luke and Jesus in the gospel of Luke talk about that a lot. So depending on your church background, you may have heard Christians talk about giving in one or two ways. Some churches talk about giving all the time. It's like all they talk about, and every week they're in the offering, they're talking about, you know, putting your money at the feet of the man of God, and then all the blessings will come down from heaven onto you. Right? So you might hear about that, and there's always doing a, there's always a capital campaign, there's always this campaign, there's always this thing you've got to get money to, and so they're constantly talking about it. But then there's a large section of the church that has reacted to that, so they never talk about giving your money. And neither of those are correct, and neither of those are biblical. So while Jesus doesn't talk about money all the time, he does talk about it, so we need to talk about it too. So today what I want us to realize is that giving is an act of worship measured by what it costs. God wants us to, sh to worship him through giving our money, but the way God measures that is 
he measures it by what it costs us and what it costs our lives. And so I'm going to talk about giving as worship, and then I'm going to talk about how giving has a standard and giving has a cost. So if you look at giving as worship, if you look back again in verse 1 and 2, Jesus looked up and he saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box, and he saw a poor widow put in two copper coins. See, giving is an act of worship which shows gratitude to God for what he's done for us. So Jesus is in the temple and everybody's coming forward and they're giving money. The rich give a certain amount and the widow gives a certain amount. And this goes back, if you rewind rewind the game tape of the the Bible and you go back to Deuteronomy chapter 8, after God has freed Israel from Egypt, God promises to care for them, but then he warns them in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 17 through 18, he says this, Beware, lest you say in your hearts, My power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. Listen to what he says. He says, You shall remember that the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth. God saved Israel from the clutches of Pharaoh. And all of their wealth, everything that contributes to their wealth, was not earned by them, God says, but was given to them by God. So all their wealth, in many ways, is on loan from God. So when it came to how they were to use their God-given wealth, God had a right to say how it's supposed to be used because it's actually his money. Now, if you're a young person here today, you've never taken out a mortgage, the rest of us will let you know this is true. That if you take out a mortgage from the bank, you're required to use that money to do what? Buy a home. If you take out a, mor- if you take out a loan for a car, you're required to use that money to buy what? A car. So just because it's in your bank account doesn't mean it's yours to do whatever you want with it. Right? God, who loans us his money, makes giving it back to him an act of worship. So Israel is required to tithe, right? Just because they have the money, God's saying, just because you have the money doesn't mean you get to do whatever you want with it. There's actually a way you're supposed to be using it. And so God required them to tithe. Now, tithe is giving a tenth of your parts back to God. God gives you wealth to give a tenth back. And you would give this through the temple, and you would give it to the priest, and the priest would often then, the Levites would give it to the high priests, they would, they would tithe as well. So everyone's kind of tithing, and they're all doing this. And now scholars, when they talk about it, they actually say over seven years, the Israelites gave somewhere between 12 to 14 tithes. And normally we would think about tithing as a tenth of our income. But actually, as scholars have started to look it up, it's actually closer to about 18 to 20% of their income over those seven years. So they would give 20%, 18 20% of the income first, and then they would live off of the other 80. Now, many of us, though, when we talk about giving, do the opposite. We don't give God what's first. We give God the leftovers. So once I'm done paying for everything else and everything I want to do, if I have a little bit left over, then I'll give it to God. But giving is an act of worship. Is that worship? If God is last in my life? No. Worship is when God becomes first in my life. God becomes the priority in my life. 
And so giving is an act of worship to show we're grateful to God for rescuing us and caring for our needs. See, it's not whether or not we worship, it's what we worship. And God is aware of that. And so God says, the way I use my money actually reveals if I worship God or I'm worshiping something else. So Matthew, sorry, Malachi chapter 3, God's speaking to Israel. He says, will man rob God, yet you are robbing me, God says. But God, knowing the next objection they're going to have and what they think before they think, he says, but you will say, but you say, how have we robbed you? He says, in your tithes and contributions. So I ask you, have you ever thought about that way? Have you ever thought about when you hold back your money from God and what he's asking you to do, as much or as little as that is, that not only are you disobeying him, you're actually robbing him because it's not your money. So giving is an act of worship, but giving has a certain standard to it as well. So if you look at what Jesus says in verse 3, he says... Truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. Why? For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. See, there is a standard for giving. So in Jesus' day, when the Jews would come to the temple, they would give their tithes to God. And sometimes what would happen is, or what some scholars think happened is, what you would do is they would go give the money, and then somebody would announce how much you gave. So this is how Jesus knows the widow gave two coins. Because somebody announced it. So it'd be like, hey, when the offering plates, we just passed them, right? Coming out, like, somebody be up here, Rob's up front, and he's like, Evan gave $100. It's a little embarrassing, right? We don't do it that way anymore, but that's what they would do. So they actually knew, Jesus knows how much people are giving because it's being announced, many scholars think. So the rich came to the temple, and they give what's required of them. But then comes a poor widow. In the first century world, being a widow was as close to a death sentence as possible. There's no easy way for you to earn income without a husband. There's only one real good way to earn income without a husband, or one, I don't want to say good way, what I want to say is there's an option, which let's just say requires you to work the night, right? That's the only way women can make income by themselves. So she's as good as dead, no opportunity to make money because she does not have a husband. And God knows this. And God knows this is going to be the case for widows. So God compassionately gave widows a different standard for giving. So she gives two lepta, two coins, which are the smallest coins you can give in the first century. They're actually from Alexander the Great. That's when they started circulation. You can go home and impress your friends with that knowledge later. But... It was the equivalent of five minutes of work at minimum wage. It'd be like working at McDonald's, which is now you can make like $14 an hour. But back in the day, you made minimum wage. It'd be like working five minutes and whatever that cost was, whatever that amount was, that's what you would get. she was given. Now, as a kid in Sunday school, I kind of was told this story in a different way. The way I was told it was as if this was like a rap video. Where like, and you're going to follow me. If you don't watch rap videos or you haven't seen rap videos, just follow me with this analogy. In rap videos, a lot of time you see guys with like making it rain. So they take money and they just like put it up in the air like this. This is what the picture that was given to me was it was like a rap video and all the rich are coming. They have all their bills and they're just like this. 
raining and all the bills flying everywhere and then somebody's like chasing with the baskets catching all the money out of the air like that's what's happening and everyone's clapping for them and high-fiving them like yeah all right this guy doesn't even care about his money he just throws it up in the air no big deal but there's no indication that that's what's happening here. There's no indication that the rich are flaunting their wealth. There's no indication that they're dumping money in and gold coins are just spilling out all over the floor and people are high-fiving them and they're in some type of rap video. There's no indication that here. All that it tells us is that they, they do what they're supposed to do. See, Jesus isn't contrasting who meets the standard and who doesn't. Both the rich and the widow meet the standards God set out for them. But even though both meet the standard, only one of them becomes the standard. So when the church passed out the offering plates, the rich, they put in their gifts, just like everybody else. Just like the widow. But when the rich went back home, after church, they go home to swim in their pools, filled with gold coins like Scrooge McDuck. But the widow goes home, and she rummages through her drawers to find food stamps. That's the picture we're having here. Both are doing what God requires of them. But she, the widow, becomes the standard, not the rich. Which is why the disciples oftentimes have trouble with this, right? Like, if rich can't earn eternal life, how can we earn eternal life, right? Because Jesus is doing something different. He turns a lot of things on its head. It's upside-down kingdom of God idea. So what Jesus is doing, the socially, relationally, financially lost one in the widow now becomes the standard because she sacrifices so much in giving that she risks her survival to do it. Now for many of us, myself included, oftentimes we're not even meeting the standards. So many times like we might beat up on the rich and be like, oh, the rich, how could they do this? Oh my goodness. Look at that. I'm definitely like the widow. If you're reading this and you're thinking you're the widow, you're reading the story wrong. Okay? For many of us, we're not even doing what the rich do. At least they meet the standards. But we, myself included, many of us are often a number of steps away from the widow. We think we're one step or two, three, four, five steps away from the widow in terms of sacrificially giving. Now, you might be thinking, and I like when you think the things that I already wrote down in my notes. So you might be thinking an easy objection might be, well, Evan, we don't live under the Old Testament law. I go to Third Reformed, we're Presbyterian, we talk about the gospel all the time, we know we don't live under the law anymore. We're New Testament people. But I would just challenge and push back on that and say, look, time and time again, Jesus doesn't lessen the standards of the Old Testament, he heightens them. So where it's no longer if you murder somebody, you're liable to judgment. It's if you're angry with somebody, even then you're liable to God's judgment. It's not if you actually sleep with somebody who's, your, who's not your spouse, that's adultery. It's like that. And if you lust after somebody who's not your spouse, that's adultery too. And he says in another place in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, if, he said, you have heard it said, like, love your friends and hate your enemies. But I say to you, what? Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. So Jesus heightens the Old Testament law. And he does that so we can understand and understand the need of our dependency upon him and upon God for forgiveness. Because so, so this situation, what happens in the New Testament is that the 
In the Old Testament, 10 to 20% is the ceiling. In the New Testament, 10 to 20% becomes the floor. It becomes, that's where we start. Because the Bible tells us, the New Testament tells us, just be generous. Be generous. Jesus is saying, be so sacrificial in your giving that you risk your survival like this widow. So Jesus takes the commands of the Old Testament and he heightens them, not just to cover our actions, right? Not just so our actions are in order, but to make sure our hearts are in order as well. And he asks all of us, as he asks his disciples, the way he's pointing out, he's subtly asking us, are you giving as much as the widow gave? So giving has a cost to it. Daryl Bach in his commentary of Luke says, when God measures the life of service, he doesn't just count, he weighs. God doesn't simply just measure how much you and I give. He measures how much it costs us to give it. Because only when it costs us something can we be free from the stranglehold money has on our lives, our hearts, and our souls. Now, since COVID... I'm not sure I'm ever going to return to a buffet again. Like, I'm just weird about it. All these people touching the same utensils, the same serving utensils. People, like, sneezing on food. Like, that's just the picture I have of what happens at buffets. Like, I know they got their sneeze guards, but little kids are below those guards. So they're going to sneeze right into my chicken nuggets. Right? So, so but just imagine for yourself, you're, with, you're like me, but just roll with me. If you're going to a buffet... Just imagine you're going to buffet. Say you go to like Shady Maple near Lancaster, right? And you're just like, I dropped like $25 on this meal. I'm going to get like $50 worth, right? So I'm just like going to go all out. They have steak and they have chicken. They have French fries. They have a salad bar as well. It doesn't seem very popular, but the rest, as much as the rest of the stuff. And they have all this ice cream, which seems to be very popular with the kids. And you can have it all, as much as you want. And you can just go all in, right? But at some point, you have to say no. Like at some point you have to say, I'm done, time out, I'm out, I'm out. Because if you eat too much and you just keep filling yourself up, what happens is you start to feel awful. Or what happens is they vent, you eat so much they have to roll you out. <laughs> so life is often like a buffet, right? There's so many options, there's so many things that offer to give us happiness. And if we're going to be truly happy though, we need to say no to some things. And that's what Jesus calls self-denial. But our world tells us, what does our world tell us? Keep stuffing your faces. Keep shoving all these things. All these things that are supposed to make you happy. Just shove them down your gullet. And jam more and more food in there. More and more things in there. And you'll be happy. That's what is known as self-gratification. <laughs> See, self-denial, Jesus understands, is the way to true happiness. And Jesus talks about self-denial in Luke 14. He says, Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he is enough to complete it? See, when we deny ourselves and we depend on God for our help, we depend on God rather than things. See, until we deny ourselves, until we give up our hopes and dreams, until we give up the house we want versus the house that we have, or we give up the life we want versus the life we have, or the life our kids must have for some reason. I never understand that one. 
Like, who told your kids need to have this life? I, I didn't. The Bible didn't. But we feel like we have to. And so we take all these things and we place them at the feet of Jesus. We're never going to be able to live in the freedom and happiness that he, he offers us. See, following Jesus requires risk. Jesus looked up and saw, and what he saw was two kinds of people. One who took little to no risk, and one who risked it all. And you might be objecting right now, and again, thank you for thinking the things that are in my notes. But doesn't God want me to enjoy my life? And absolutely he does. But he says the road to this is through self-denial, not self-gratification. In Acts chapter 30, chapter 20, there's no Acts chapter 30, excuse me. Acts chapter 20, verse 35, Paul says, Remember the words of Lord Jesus, how he himself said, It's more blessed to give than to receive. See, if Jesus is right, and I hope you think he's right, this widow who risked it all is happier, which is what blessed means, than the rich. See, Jesus wants you and I to give for our happiness sake. And it's not weak, surfacy, no struggles, smile and act like everything's okay, happiness. It's deep, powerful, satisfying, sometimes holding onto dear life but rooted in him, happiness. And he knows you'll be happier if your posture is more give than it is get. Because by giving more than you're getting, what happens is you get a front row seat to God's work in your life. Because you're starting to depend on him. You'll get a chance to step out in faith and trust God and see God coming through. And sometimes, and that might be some of your stories, that sometimes bills are miraculously paid for. Like you have no idea. You call the mortgage company. I have a friend this happened to. Called the mortgage company to pay their mortgage and it was paid for. Somehow. Was it an accounting error or whatever it was? We're not sure, but God worked it out. Sometimes it happens. Sometimes you get envelopes of cash in your mailbox with just a note that says, thank you for everything you do, I love you. These are anonymous gifts. But most times it's more like standing strong in storms and trials. Sometimes it's more like having hope in the face of death. Sometimes it's more like contentment, no matter how much or how little you have. See, in those times, your happiness will only be as strong as the thing you find happiness in. But most of us, if we're honest, we believe it's more blessed to receive than give. So Paul, understanding this, says in 1 Timothy 6, he says, But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires. Like, all right, Paul, like, chill out, man. All right, we got it. But then he says this, These things plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It's through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Paul's saying if you want to run after this, you want to run after the things of the world, you want to obtain everything the world has to offer, you want to make yourself rich, you need to understand it's only going to lead to destruction. And even some have walked away from the faith to chase these things. Self-gratification always leads to destruction. We as 21st century Americans are the richest people that have ever walked the face of the earth. Yet American Christians on average give less percentage of their income now than they did during the Great Depression. 
That's a shame. Because statistically, the more money you make, the less percentage you're likely to give. See, the more money we make, the more likely we're to fall in love with our money. So we seek self-gratification. We, we seek it over self-denial. And thus, we never take the risks required to be truly happy in the way Jesus offers it to us. So for most American Christians, when it comes to giving, our survival is not at risk. We're not like the widow where our survival is at risk. Our vacations are at risk. Our second homes are at risk. Our private education for our kids is at risk. Our eating out is at risk. Our Starbucks runs are at risk. Our Dunkin' Donuts runs, like more people Dunkin' Donuts, that's me. Our Dunkin' Donuts runs, they're at risk. Or our new kitchen, or new bathroom, or our new flooring, that's at risk. Because if I give what God is asking of me, I might not be able to get those things. So our ability to gratify our desires are at risk. But it costs something, Jesus is trying to get us to understand. It costs something to get this deep, powerful, satisfying, sometimes holding on to dear life, but rooted in me, happiness. But we sell ourselves out for what? One more vacation? The newest phone? Or newest technology? We sell ourselves out for what? A new kitchen? See, self-gratification always leads to empty satisfaction. When mom would tell you not to eat cookies before dinner, why did she tell you to do that? Because you'll ruin your what? Appetite or dinner. Yeah. Why would she do that? Because she's a monster? No. (laughs) Because mom knows that cookies taste good, but they have no nutritional value. So what's going to happen is you're going to fill yourself up with carbs and sugar, and then you'll be hungry 10 minutes later. And conveniently, it's always the 10 minutes in which it takes for us to eat dinner. So, but psychology also tells us the reason why she, she does this, even though she may not say it this way, is that maturity isn't the delaying of self-gratification. When we, if we want to mature, we have to delay self-gratification. And mom knows that. She's not a psychologist, but she's pretty smart. You'll never grow up if you keep eating cookies rather than waiting for dinner. Mom knows that. So using my money for what I want rather than what God wants tastes good, but has no spiritual value. So we, rent, we end up running around with our wallets in the air, chasing after our dreams and our goals and material things, many of which, by the way, we'll never reach, we'll never get. And even if we do, the happiness that we get burns off really quickly, and so we're hungry again, and so we double down on throwing our money at something else hoping that will satisfy us, but it won't. We do it time and time again. And Jesus is saying, if you want to grow up, you're going to have to say no to the cookies. You're going to have to say yes to dinner. You can't keep saying yes to the things of this world and no to the freedom that Jesus is offering with self-denial. And one thing I often hear is, but isn't generosity more than money? Like, I'm generous in all these other ways. And I remember about like seven years ago, I was driving with a brother in Christ back from a men's retreat, and he just called me out on it. I was thinking the same thing. And I said to him, he he would say, hey man, like what do you think about the talk we recently heard about generosity? And I said, well, you know, like I'm not really given what I should be given, but you know, I'm generous in other ways with my time and my talents. And he just said, look man, I hear you, I love you, but I gotta call you on the carpet. 
And he told me what I already knew I was doing. He said, you're manipulating God's commands so you don't have to do anything. So you don't have to change. Sure, the Bible does tell us to be generous with our time and our talents. But Jesus also says to honor God with our money, our treasure. See, too many of us live in a world of or rather than and when it comes to generosity. The Bible's call of generosity is not time or talents or treasure. It's to give of our time and our talents and our treasure. And you might not feel like you can give. You might not feel like you can give right now. And I would say for most of us, if you're like me, I, we can't give because we're making decisions with our money that make it so we can't give. There are unnecessary things in my budget that I'm just really not willing to give up, if I'm being honest. But it's good for me to remind myself that my family is going to be okay without vacations that are beyond my means. Like my kids are going to be okay if for some reason I can't send them to private school. They'll be okay. Or I'll be okay if I don't keep up with the Joneses. See, when I depend on God, I'll always be okay. Not because everything's going to work out the way I want it to work out, but because he's consistently walking through every situation with me. The problem is, though, I'm often running after things that are ultimately empty, hoping they're going to make me okay. And I can tell you of men and women I know who make so much less than me, they're just crushing it when it comes to giving. Because they give by the standard of the widow. It might not be a lot on paper, but it costs them so much more than it costs me. And so Paul reminds us when we talk about giving, he says in 2 Corinthians 9, 7, Each one must give as he's decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. See, God wants you to deny yourself by sacrificially giving to him in his kingdom, not because I said so. Not because you heard a sermon. Not because you heard a podcast and thought it was a good idea. Or actually, he doesn't even want you to give because he said so. He doesn't want you to grin and bear it. He doesn't want you to white-knuckle giving. He wants you to give cheerfully and willingly. Because you're grateful for what he's done. He wants cheerful self-denial from us. So we need to stop defending ourselves from God's commands and cheerfully start depending on him for our needs. As Jesus says, asking him to give us our daily bread. So we give to him as an act of worship. We take risks despite what it costs us so we can experience the freedom and happiness only he can offer. But when Paul talks about this, it's right before there in chapter 8, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, he starts talking to the Corinthians who, ha who are wealthy. And he talks to them about the Macedonians. He says these Ma Macedonians are so poor, yet they give and they give beyond their means. And when Paul tells them that, he doesn't appeal to them with law. He doesn't appeal with them with a command from God. The way Paul appeals to the hearts of the Corinthians, he says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. See, we give because Jesus has given. 
Jesus voluntarily became financially poor. That's actually the language that's being used. Jesus actually was in heaven, had everything you could imagine, became financially poor so you might be spiritually rich. C.S. Lewis talks about this. He's like, if you're having trouble imagining that, imagine you becoming a slug. You're like brown, you got all those spots, you have that weird like saliva trail thing. I don't know what that is. Somebody can tell me about what that is later. Little kids pour salt on you just to have fun, right? That's what it was like for Jesus. It was like as if you became a slug. It cost Jesus so much. It actually cost Jesus so much more than the widow because he gave up everything to save you. Jesus didn't just risk his survival, he gave up his survival. Jesus not only said it's better to give him than to receive, he actually lived it out by giving his life for you. And God wants Jesus' self-denial to be motivation for your self-denial, for my self-denial. And through showing him that he's worthy of our worship by gratefully giving our money back to him. See, giving may cost us some, but it costs Jesus all. And if I was actually to come to grasp with that, if you were actually to come to grasp with that, but how Jesus gave us everything was like he became a, us becoming a slug and then dying for all the other slugs, you would take risks and give. Because if you depend on Jesus for your spiritual survival, you can depend on him to take care of your earthly survival. You'd give a great cost to yourself, not because you want to meet a standard, but because you're grateful. So my challenge to you is to leave behind self-gratification. And when you leave that behind, you'll end up leaving behind the stranglehold that money has on your life, your heart, and your soul, and start embracing self-denial as a road to freedom. Risk much in giving. Give until it pinches a little bit. For some of us, we need to just start giving today. Or the next time we come to church, we need to start giving. We just need to start for others of us, we just need to add to what we give. We need to say, okay, let me try this month to give five more dollars. Next month, let me try to give ten more dollars. And see if I can survive off of that. And I keep depending on Jesus for more and more. Hey, Jesus, I'm not going to go to Dunkin' Donuts as much this month. And I've added it all up because we have these crazy things called bank statements. And I added it all up. And I spent $30 a month at Dunkin' Donuts. I'm going to drop that to 15 Jesus. I'm going to give you the other 15 But for some of us, have just as much as the widows have. The widow had. For some of us, we just need to start giving pennies. A few dollars in our wallets when the offering plate comes around. That's all God's asking us to give. So sometimes I like to think and ask myself, like, what if Jesus had the same objections, objections about saving us as I have for not giving? Like, what if Jesus decided to not meet God's standard? like we often do. And he tried to hold back his life rather than giving it up. Like what if Jesus manipulated God's commands? Like I often do. And he tried to get out of going to the cross. Like what if Jesus lived in the world of or rather than and? Like I often do. So he generously lived the life that I should have lived but he refuses to die the death I deserve to die, where would that have left me? What would it have been like if Jesus acted on his objections? Or if he had them in the first place? 
Or if I just gave him my objections and he acted on those. He said, I'm not going to give because X, Y, and Z. But of course Jesus didn't. He denied himself and took up the cross and he invites me and you to do the same. Despite what it costs us. Because the giving God calls us to is measured by what it costs. And we, out of gratitude, give because it costs Jesus so much. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, we're grateful for what you have given to save us. And may we respond in our own giving. May we be dependent on God. Rather than defending ourselves from God, may we be dependent on him. May we put our objections aside and just start to take steps towards giving. Some of us need to start, some of us need to add a little bit, and some of us need to throw a few pennies in the offering plate because it's all we have. But may we take these risks as you tell us it's more blessed to give than receive. May that be the motto of our lives and especially in the way we treat our money. We pray this in your name. Amen.